This is about our lives. This is about American lives. Welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. I've been thinking a lot about trust recently because I'm writing a book about it. The more I've studied it, the more I realise what a difficult thing it is to measure and to establish. So I'm very pleased to have the chance to talk to the US commentator, Arnand Gidardas. He's a writer and a political analyst at MSNBC and the author of a new book, The Persuaders, Winning Hearts and Minds in a Divided Age. Welcome to The Bunker, Arnand. Thank you so much for having me. Arnand, you end your book with a quote. People change, but people often don't want to change, do they? They're inclined to hold on to their instincts, hold on to their beliefs. Who in American politics is good at encouraging people to change their minds? Well, I, I started the book out of that the kind of despair that's in your question that that people seem so immovable now, and so I was in a lot of despair about can we go on as a as a liberal democracy if we can't agree on basic reality, if we can't move each other. Uh, on these issues. And I decided to spend time with a bunch of people who are doing it, who are particularly organizers on working on the ground in communities. And what I learned from them over a period of years was a set of methods, a kind of toolkit um, that is actually very effective still in an age of polarization. It doesn't get you everybody, but it gets you enough people to make the difference between winning and losing really essential battles for the future. Um, I think the biggest thing I learned from them above all is is their mental model of people they are trying to persuade is as fundamentally conflicted, internally contradicted, rather than monolithic. A lot of us default into a view. We, we know we are complicated. And I may grant, since I'm sitting across from you, that you are complicated. But when the people at the far shore, we imagine them to be simple. And first of all, that's empirically false. Most people have a B-side. But second of all, it's self-defeating. Uh, if you if you assume that people who think differently from you are defined by that single story, you are essentially surrendering in the battle to win the kind of society you want for your children. Uh, and so I think we need to to accept how difficult some of these present political challenges are, but also to accept that there's always more going on in people. It's on us to understand those internal contradictions in people and play up some of those B-sides in them uh, in the hope of, of getting the world we want. So who did you meet who impressed you, who was able to cut through in this way and change people's minds? I start the book with three activists who are um, important activists on the political left in the United States. Linda Sarsour, Loretta Ross, Alicia Garza. Linda led the largest co-led the largest single-day protest in American history, the Women's March, after Trump won. Alicia Garza was one of the people who co-created Black Lives Matter. Uh, Loretta Ross, in her 70s, one of veteran uh, social justice, racial justice, reproductive justice advocates. She coined, uh, along with colleagues, the term reproductive justice as opposed to simply reproductive rights to bring in a view of all the things that make women's reproductive life hard, not just the right to abortion, but poverty and immigration policy and all these things. And all of them, three of them, women of color activists on the front lines of very radical, ambitious fights, but all of them had a concern expressed in different ways that their movements were more interested in policing who gets into the movement 
than conquering and expanding. This is not a right-wing critique of cancel culture or any of these things. This is a critique of people who want fundamental transformative social change, but who believe that their movements need to be small e evangelical if they're going to survive and and who have real um, strategies for for doing that using language, using uh, empathy, not at the same time, not seeding ground, not watering down your convictions, not saying we're going to be half for racial justice or half Uh, supportive of trans people, standing firmly and bravely for things, but doing a better job of reaching out, explaining them to people. In a way, doing a lot of what the extreme right has been very good at, which is commanding attention and giving people a sense of belonging in a movement. I think what a lot of the different characters I wrote about in the book believe is that the political left needs to get much better at matching the far right in creating that kind of movement of belonging. So tell us about some of the tensions that emerged around the Women's March, which I was not aware of until reading your book, and which you you write about how the, the tensions behind the scenes and how some of them were resolved. How did that uh, happen? You know, one of the difficulties on the political left is that this this old saying of your enemy's enemy is your friend is not really a mantra on the left. It, it, so when when Trump won, of course... The American political left was united in their revulsion for Donald Trump. However, that did not necessarily make easy common cause. So there was a group of women, white women at the beginning, who organized the beginnings of a march against Trump. And there was a bunch of women of color activists who, although they shared the objection to Trump, were concerned about a movement of resistance to Trump that was fully led and designed by white women when this campaign had been a campaign, the Trump's campaign, kind of waged against people of color in the United States. Would those women be able to see and represent their issues? Would those women center labor policy, which affects women, and immigration policy, which affects women, and uh, the extent to which technology is regulated, which affects women? And so a lot of these women of color wanted a more intersectional movement, as they called it, where it would not simply be uh, objecting to Donald Trump and, and fighting him on a very narrow terrain, but bringing in a broad view. And there was a real internal struggle about this, and they, but there was also real shifts that happened. And these women educated each other, and they came into coalition with each other, and they did end up bringing in a much broader array. They ended up diversifying the leadership. It was, in many ways, incredibly successful, largest single-day protest in the history of the United States, events around the world, as you know, including here in London. But at the same time, um, those conflicts did not, were not easily resolved, and they endured, and the group sort of broke up somewhat acrimoniously afterwards. And, you know, this is a common uh, criticism on the left that there's this internal splintering, but I think it's also a little more complicated. Internal splintering is also a sign that you don't live in a cult. And these women were having real and powerful and important, you know, in some ways beautiful disagreements about the best way to fight for change. You write quite a lot about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, really fascinating figure, I think, for a lot of people in Britain as well. She hasn't always gone down well with established Democrat politicians, but she has a way of cutting through, which is clearly very, very successful. And you write about some of the struggles she's had to kind of moderate her message to 
reach people in the most effective way. What tactics does she use to persuade people that, that work really well? When I was last in Britain in the middle of 2019, I hadn't even written about AOC at that moment. And I remember how much fascination there was in this country with her. And I think there's a reason she's become a phenomenon here and globally. I spent a lot of time with her over the last two years trying to understand her story from her perspective. And the funny thing is she kind of wrote herself into the book. I was already working on this book. And she was actually just, she came on a TV show that I was hosting. And I was texting with her, thanking her for coming to the TV show. And she, we sort of got to, what are you working on? And I mentioned a book on persuasion. And she said, oh, that's so funny. I think of myself as a persuader, but no one sees me that way. And she said, you know, I think sometimes I, I feel like I'm, I've been deliberately miscast. And that, that kind of internal contradiction fascinates me as a writer. So I, I dug into it and started spending time with her and doing interviews about her life and her kind of education as a persuader, as an organizer, as a politician. And the story that I found was this is someone who, if you spend time with her, she's incredibly different from the public image. She's, I think, kind of one of the shyer people in many rooms that she's in. Uh, I think she's much more of a listener than a talker. Um, she's a vacuum of social information and what's happening in the context of a group. All of these, by the way, are very classic organizer behaviors. And she describes her training as an organizer in this way. And then, in a way that few of us can imagine, for some people, the lightning strikes you at a certain moment in your life, the lightning of fame and success. And and I, I write in the book, you, you can't choose where you're standing and what you're wearing when the lightning strikes. And and, and the, the moment at which it caught her, the position at which it caught her was kind of Duchess of the Doctrinaire, Queen of the Strident. And as she reflects to me in the book, that's not not her. I mean, it's not all of her. I don't even know that it's the dominant side of her. But that's how she was processed by the world. That's how her enemies defined her. But that's also how those who admired her. I think the reason, you know, her own generation and younger so admire her is the feeling that after all these years of milquetoast politicians who stand for nothing and say anything, she was clear and she was definitive and she was strident. And, and these two personalities, I think, the organizer in her that wants to listen and wants to think about how do I position universal health care for a right-wing person? How do I, what's a Christian case for the environment that I can use to speak to evangelical Christians in America? That's a really big part of her as an organizer, and that's the training of an organizer. And there's another part of her that is, how do I provoke and change the conversation? How do I wear a dress that has tax the rich written on the back so that the whole country talks about those three words for two days, even if they, even if they hate me in the process? How am, I, how am I going to get the whole country to talk about something for, for two or three days, which is a huge achievement in 2022 if you can do it? And she's really tried, and I portray her in the book, trying to balance these things, which I think actually anybody listening to this can relate to of how do you stand, even if you're not AOC, how do you stand for something? How do you stand bravely for something in your community, in your family, with people who disagree with you? Not just wash away in the sand, but at the same time, Make sure you're reaching people. Make sure your hearts are open enough to people that they can be open enough to you. And she is someone who I think has struggled beautifully with this and has, you know, I think she's the most significant new member of Congress in American history. I don't think anybody else has shifted the conversation like that. Do you think she will go all the way? Could she make it to president one day? Oh, I don't. I have no doubt that she could, that she has the talent. I mean, I, you know, I, I would say in my lifetime, her name would go on a list of talents like 
Barack Obama and, you know, Bernie Sanders, others who really built huge movements and followings. Um, does she want to? I don't know. I said to her towards the end of the reporting time together, you seem to me more attracted to the possibility of getting out of this game than staying in it. And I can't think of anybody I've ever met in politics. I mean, I meet so many people in politics who are total mediocrities, but who want to stay in the game and reach the top. And here is someone who is has as much talent as anybody I've ever seen in politics. And what does it say about politics, not her, that she seems as drawn to getting out of the game as staying in it? Let's talk about Joe Biden, because he treads a delicate path between not wanting to alienate swing voters and keeping core Democrat voters on board. But is it time for him to pass the Democrat torch to a younger generation? What I mean is, should he run for a second term? It looks like he's going to at the moment. Should he? Well, in some ways, the Persuaders book is an attempt to suggest that that line he's walking is the wrong line to be walking. And is a line that Democrats in America have tried to walk for a long time, which is um, you persuade by taking your own most passionate supporters for granted. You assume their love will always be there and you stray from them and you reach out to these swing voters in the middle, which by the way, in the America, there's a lot of swing voters in America. In this discussion, it's always white working class swing voters in certain states. It's there's black swing voters, there's Hispanic swing voters, there's, you know, but but somehow this conversation always becomes about a certain kind of white working class voter that goes back and forth. And what you do to appease those swing voters is you dilute. So it's persuasion through dilution. You start with a noble ideal like universal health care, and then you just add a lot of water to it and whisk, and then you serve this very thin gruel to everyone. And what happens is that these working class white swing voters who are calling you a communist, they actually still call you a communist. And now your most passionate supporters feel cold and sad and vaguely depressed. And that this is where Democrats in the US have often ended up. One of the arguments of the book is that this model needs to be turned on its head. That in fact, what Joe Biden should be doing is catering to his base with big ambitious policy and then sell it to the rest of the country through rhetoric and storytelling and communication, right? Make them so thrilled with you that they're chattering about what you've done for them nonstop. And you know what? Their uncles and nieces and sisters and coworkers are going to overhear you talking about your student loan that got wiped out. They're going to hear you talking about the child payments that you suddenly got thanks to Uncle Joe Biden. They're going to hear about the new bridge in your community, and they're going to reward you by talking about it across town. Um, in terms of the second term, look, I think Joe Biden was not my flavor of Democrat. I, he, he is someone whose, whose career was defined by caution and moderation and, and, and a kind of often like milquetoast approach to policy. Joe Biden, however, is a, what many people have described as like a kind of coalitional politician as opposed to a star in the way that Obama and Clinton were stars. They were kind of singular stars. Joe Biden is not a singular star in that way. And as a result, he has been much more willing to be the figurehead of his diverse coalition, whatever his diverse coalition wants. And his coalition has moved, thanks in part to Bernie Sanders, AOC, and others. 
is a big, a lot of energy in the coalition is much more progressive and ambitious than even a few years ago. And he has responded to that, acted on it. Proposed, he, this guy proposed three separate $1 trillion plus spending bills in his first year. This is a man who voted for Reagan's tax and government cuts in 1981. So the evolution Joe Biden's on is impressive. It's not something I would have ever imagined possible. Should he run again? Look, I think if he wants to run again, he, the thing he has to do better is do a much better job of telling the story about what he's doing, talking Americans through this moment. I mean, you know here in Britain, the, the amount of disinformation, whether it's Russian, whether it's native-born, is it's incredible right now. The other side on any issue is filling the airwaves with toxic bile, with hatred, with, with made-up stuff. And if you don't saturate with your own positive, true story of what is happening, if you don't explain the times people are going through, right? Inflation, it's happening around the world, but it's not self-explanatory. It freaks people out. It makes people hurt. You have to talk people through it. I right? think about the Second World War. Leaders, great leaders, talked people through it. But there were, there were speeches that could be given. There were radio addresses that could be made, many famous ones that we can all still quote. It wasn't that leaders could snap their finger and make the prices go back down or make your you know, husband come back home from the war sooner than he was otherwise going to come home. But they could talk you through it. They could tell you why you were struggling, why you were sacrificing. I look at it now. COVID has been an extraordinary and difficult time for people. This inflation thing is an extraordinary and difficult time for people. Climate doom for young people in particular. I, I can't think of what is the equivalent of like the Queen's speeches or Churchill's speeches or FDR's speeches in that time. What is the equivalent now? Who is talking anyone through anything? Yeah. Do you get frustrated sometimes with the obsession in the US-UK political establishment with Twitter because, you know, it seems to be the place where the elite do politics, yeah? And then Elon Musk has taken it over and has, has suggested that there will be some changes, which a lot of people do not like the sound of. And for me, it's like, guys, you, you chose to hang out on a private platform talking to each other about politics, and now you're surprised that the new owner is changing the rules. Is it frustrating to you that there's too much Twitter, maybe not enough actually talking to people in real life on the ground? Well, I think both things can be true. I mean, I, it is absolutely true that the political class and the journalistic class has probably gotten too hooked on Twitter. I'm one of those people. I will say in my defense and the defense of many of my colleagues, we've also lived through a massive gutting of media in our time. I mean, American newsrooms, I don't know about here, American newsrooms are have 50% of the people they had a few decades ago. Yep. Also, the capacity in a fragmented age, the capacity of even a New York Times to put an idea on the map is way diminished, right? Mm -hmm. It just, there was a time when if something was on the cover of the Sunday Review of the New York Times on the cover, like cover of Time Magazine, like the nation would like stop walking on the street and talk about it for five minutes. That does not happen. There's I, almost no publication, no show can do that. So in that age, we've also relied on journalists to build their own audiences. When I write for, frankly, big publications, they're expecting me to bring my audience to them as much as I'm expecting them to bring their audience to me. Now, I think that's actually really messed up. I would much prefer if any magazine I wrote for could supply the audience and I supply the words. That feels like the more normal relationship, right? I would say, I mean, the New York Times, 
when I write, the, the Times can bring its own audience. But anything short of that level, most publications, often you are bringing more audience to them than they're bringing to you. So is it bad that I hang out on Twitter? I don't know. Like, it's sort of how in, in this kind of diminished media ecosystem we live in, it's sort of how the risk has been shifted onto journalists to carry their own audiences in their pocket. And frankly, I think a lot of us would prefer not to have to do that if media organizations could do their job of holding audiences, right? Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a very complicated problem. Has it caused us to spend too much time not talking to people in real life? Absolutely. You know, is that a problem? Absolutely. It's also a place where, as Ezra Klein, a great American writer, said to me, you know, Twitter's defined by bullying dynamics. Twitter is sort of middle school to, on a platform. And that's probably not a healthy place for people who think about social change and write about social change and seek to deliver social change. Now, does that mean Elon Musk should do whatever he wants? No. And he's a, you know, a limited man and a kind of big baby who's, who's you know, he, he, there's, there's just there's just some men who like never stop being an 11 year old boy and and like clearly his desire is to like poke and troll people you know his first thing one of the first things he did after buying twitter was to was to spew disinformation about an assassination attempt on the second in line to the presidency um nancy pelosi and to then suggest the kind of tax on verified twitter users um which is essentially I'm going to spew disinformation as the owner, and I am going to tax people whose professional job it is to put better information into the system. So he's making his intentions very, very clear. Anand, I'm going to ask you a question that an interviewee asked me a couple of years ago when we talked about changing minds in British politics. When have you been persuaded to change your mind? Um, I think one of the the big places where I've, I've been persuaded to change my mind through really important writing over the last few years has to do with really powerful writing on race and the black experience and the nature of the American story, the nature of my understanding of what America is fundamentally. And I think there's this great Bill Clinton phrase, a good man who did a bad thing. And I think in many ways, the story of America that I grew up with was good country that did some bad things. And I, you know, I come from an immigrant family, immigrants from India, came to the U.S., found, had great luck, had the, the kind of upward and happy American success story, which is a big part of the American story of people coming from everywhere, being, you know, granted the, the opportunity to become American, moments here and there of racism, but broadly, you know, um, a chance to, yeah, a chance to become American in a way that's still a rare phenomenon in the world. And that was sort of the family story we told. And and yet in my mind, I, of course, know of other experiences and know the bitter history. But in my mind, fundamentally, America probably growing up was a good country that did some bad things. And I think there's been some really powerful writing. Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project by the New York Times in recent years, and a lot of other writing, largely by black writers, that have, I think, tried to raise the question of whether you can separate the essential nature of what America is from the bad deeds or whether the bad deeds are actually the way to understand the nature of the country. It doesn't mean the country is doomed, but I think a lot of these writers have suggested that racism, that racial supremacy was not a, was not a bug in the American story. It was a feature. It was a defining feature. It was the thing that actually allowed the rest of the things to function the way they did. And once that, I was really have been persuaded of that. And I think it, it changes the nature of 
what we're fighting for. It changes how we fight for it. I think it has helped me understand that um, we're not just trying to clean up some glitches to make America a better country. We're trying to deal with some very, very deep, deep DNA. And I'm very grateful um, for a lot of those a lot of those writers who have helped put that new way of seeing my own country um, at the forefront. I think we're having some very similar conversations in Britain at the moment about the British Empire. Thanks so much for joining me, Arnand. Thank you so much. The Persuaders, Winning Hearts and Minds in a Divided Age by Arnand Giradas is published by Alan Lane. Thanks for listening to today's Bunker. And remember that you can support us if you're in a position to do so. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get free merch and extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker. The Bunker was presented by Ros Taylor. Audio production from me, Robin Lieber. Producer is Jack Gerbertson. Assistant producer, Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer, Jacob Jarvis. And group editor, Andrew Harrison. Music is by Jade Bailey. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>